Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning, good morning. So how's the Bible reading been going this week? Enjoying it? I saw a bunch of people interacting on Facebook. We put a bunch of links up there how to make it easy, and one of the links was through Chronological Bible, and somebody came in this morning and said uh, they ordered one and Amazon sent two, and they didn't want to return it, that Amazon didn't want the return. So if you would love a Chronological Bible and, and didn't feel like you had the money to buy one, I've got a free one. Just come and see me afterwards. Uh, it's been a really fun week doing that for me as well. I understand for all of us that, that reading the Bible can be a little intimidating at times. It's got its ancient customs. It's, it's got different kinds of literature. Um, this last week I read a story uh, that reminded me of something we did years ago in, uh, when we lived in Tulsa. We went to Tulsa University. We started a group for mostly uh, students from all over the world, from primarily the Middle East and China. And most of them in that group had never heard really anything about Jesus. Maybe they'd heard that name but didn't know anything about it. So this last week, the story I was reading was about a, uh, a student from China. And the pastor gave him an English Mandarin Bible to read, and he was so eager to find out this thing called Christianity and what the Bible taught that he, he went home, he dove right in, he started reading, and he comes to Genesis 6, 17, and, and, and that's where God tells Abraham uh, to, to consummate this covenant between you and me. You need to circumcise you and all the men of your household. He read that in the morning. He went to the doctor in the afternoon. He had the deed done, and he texted the pastor that evening with, with great pride, saying, I, I took a step of obedience and faith today. Now, certainly... You have to admire the guy's sincerity of heart, right? And that, uh, and who knows, maybe it's, an, maybe it's a, an answer to the question we've been asking since Christmas. Uh, if God went through all the trouble of coming to us as Jesus, then what are we willing to get to know to him? And maybe that getting to know him means we've got to go under the knife. I don't know. Clearly it's possible to misunderstand the Bible as we read it, as this young man did. I mean, the New Testament teaches circumcision is not necessary. So I, I, I didn't hear this part of the story. I wonder what he thought when he got to that passage in the New Testament. Oops! I guess I, I should read the whole book before I do something drastic, right? Hopefully your misinterpretations of the Bible won't be as painful as his. Uh, by the way, if you don't know what circumcision is in, Jeremy, our family life pastor, would be happy to meet with you and explain it to you after, after service. <laughs> so in our one big story series that we're in right now, we're going cover to cover in the Bible uh, for much of this year to help us make sense of the Bible, to understand it better, to highlight some of the key themes and come some of the key stories. And as we do, we're going to give you resources along the way to help you understand, especially and deal with some of the more confusing and difficult things. So it makes more sense. If you're here today and you don't understand the Bible well and you missed last week, just know that you are right there with the vast majority of Americans. In fact, there are many people sitting right next to you today that don't really, really understand the Bible either. But I want to invite you to move beyond the realization that you don't understand the Bible into the adventure of understanding it with us this year so that we don't stay where the majority of Americans are. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be starting at the beginning. 
with the foundations of the Bible, which are really, really critical to understand in order to understand the whole thing. In fact, what we're describing today in the next couple of weeks is really laying the foundation for understanding reality, both as God created it and as what it's become in the wake of sin. I mentioned this last week, not that long ago, I had a wonderful conversation with a really intelligent, kind young man who was struggling with his faith, and what he was doing is he was imposing his reality on the Bible instead of let the Bible define reality for him. And I know that fighting against reality and not understanding reality can at times be humorous. I mean, that's the reason we like to watch shows like uh, America's Got Talent, to see those people who think they can sing, but they really can't, and we kind of laugh at it, right? But fighting against or not coming to grips with reality can also create very real frustration and pain and it can foment anxiety and anger and so much disappointment in life. I mean, all of us, I think, struggle with coming to grips with reality. When, when you say, if God is so loving and all-powerful, then why doesn't he? Most often what comes after that why doesn't he is actually a reality we believe to be true that isn't oftentimes what God and the Bible actually teaches us. We're imposing our reality on God rather than dealing with reality as it really is. So in order to get to the point where we can address that that struggle, what comes after the then in that phrase, we need to actually start at the beginning. We need to lay the foundation of creation from the book of Genesis as it does. So over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to see who God is. We're going to see what creation is intended to be. We're going to wrestle with the idea of who we are and how we fit in that equation and uh, what went wrong. And I think biggest of all, in light of what went wrong, where is God in all that with us? What does that mean now for us in this world since things have gone wrong? So as we jump into Genesis 1 today, we're going to look at four main lessons that we learned from God's original creation before sin. And under each one of those, several of those, there's going to be several application points that will come out of each one of those points. But but, but before we do that, what I'm not going to do today is I'm not going to be making a case for a young earth or an old earth. I'm not going to get into the whole thing of when God created, was it six literal days or whether it happened over time. Both of those positions have been held by Bible-believing followers of Jesus throughout Christian history. The primary tension around that debate between those positions actually stems from understanding how we interpret the literature that we find in Genesis 1. The young earth people lean toward what they call a literal interpretation of the Bible, meaning they believe it was written to always be 100% historical and scientific in its purpose for writing and mean literally what it says. The hinge pin of that in Genesis 1 for them is this word day in the text, which if you look at it all throughout the rest of the Bible, that word day literally means a 24-hour period. That's a good point that they have there. I love the research and the brainstorming that people who hold this view do uh, to wrestle with how science and the text could be congruent with one another in that view. I think it's fascinating. I think it's, I think it's interesting. 
The problem with that literal reading, many others would say, is the text in Genesis 1 is written in a a highly sophisticated literary structure or form. It has parallelism. It has cadence. It has other poetic forms in it. On top of that, if you look at chapter 1 and 2, they actually kind of talk about the same thing, but they actually have some differences that tend to conflict with each other between those two texts. One of the keys to interpreting the Bible in general is understanding what literary form you are reading. Poetry or some literary forms are not used with the intention to communicate historical, scientific accuracy, but rather to communicate purpose, intent, and the heart of what's happening. I think all of us would agree that trying to read poetry literally is generally not the way you're going to discover what the poet meant when they wrote it, right? And if you were to read the love letters between Wendy and I when we were engaged, you would probably think we were crazy if you read them literally. And and maybe we were, I don't know. So those who hold that Genesis 1 is not or might not be meant to be historical or scientifically accurate as the description of how and in what order everything took place would argue that Genesis 1 is poetic and Genesis 2, and this, this makes sense when you read the literature, especially in the Hebrew, that Genesis 2 is a little bit more of an essay view of the same thing. And, and, and they, they would argue that, therefore, that removes the problem of the seeming conflicting details. One is one type of literature, one is another. The intent of both is different. Now, I'm probably going to get some emails this week because I'm not going to tell you exactly what I think and how I think about this. So if you want to follow up with that topic, then you can email Jeremy at questvineyard.org this week. So regardless of whether Genesis 1 is meant to be both poetic and literal or just poetic in its structure and mode of communication, today we're going to focus on what the text tells us about God and of his creation and who we are and what that means which in the end I think is actually far more important to understanding this text than than all that other argument around young earth, old earth in this. Genesis 1 starts with these words. It says, in the beginning, God. So the beginning of the epic story that has shaped human history like no other book simply says, in the beginning, God. Before creation, there was God. Now, Now this may not seem that profound to you, but it is rather unique among creation accounts around in history. The most of the creation accounts of other religions and cultures about how the universe came about have it coming from something. There were multiple gods oftentimes in their stories fighting, and from that cosmic battle our universe and our earth come. And yet four words into this Bible give us the clue of our first lesson, which is maybe sounds a little bit like a repeat of last week, but we're going to take it further today, that God is the main character. And he's not just the main character of the Bible in that the story is primarily about him. Like we said last week, that is absolutely critical to understanding the Bible, that you realize the story is primarily about him and not us. It's God's story primarily showing us who God is. But even beyond that, God being the main character means that all of life, the entire universe, the meaning of creation 
can only be found in Him. And it all exists for Him. So let's go back to the text. The text goes on. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, that, that is just like, it feels almost flippant of a statement. I mean, just the heavens and the earth. That, that's all He did, right? I mean, this is one of those stories that starts with a big bang, right? Come on. Come on. Hey, the jokes don't get any better than that. It's the kind of movie that where if you are late from picking up your popcorn, you miss a ton, and the rest of the story you're spending time trying to figure out what happened and how did we get here and what do I need to know. But, but it's not the big bang of an accident. This is the creative, purposeful, powerful God creating. In fact, laced into the very meaning of the Hebrew word that is translated created is this idea of a purposeful shaping, a fashioning, an ordering. It's this, this magnificent craftsman or artist creating this beautiful thing with so much love and so much purpose. See, it isn't a random choice or random forces allowing only the fittest to survive. Creation, God, is purposeful. As you read the first verses of Genesis, you're actually struck as you continue to read with the grandeur of the universe, the setting in place of the the sun and the stars and the planets and the light and the darkness and the land and the water. And and it's written, structured and poetically and purposefully and beautifully. And it would be really easy to come to the conclusion that the whole point of the chapter is culminating in, in the fact that this Godhead has somehow challenged each other within the Godhead to this best galactic science fair project ever. That God creating is the main point, the preeminent point of the story. And yes, that is a tremendously awesome, powerful truth and reality all by itself. That the awesome beauty and goodness of creation, all of it is about him. And and this truth implies to us this meaning as well beyond that, that namely... God is the measure of good, order, right, and wrong. He's the one who created. Only in him do we discover what good is. God is the measure of life. Now, honestly, even for some famous atheist philosophers, they'll recognize this. For example, Jean-Paul Sartre noted that the atheist's problem starts with good news, he said. For example, uh, Sartre noted that, even as an atheist, noted that once you dispense of God, the good news is you can do whatever you want, guilt-free, with no dread of retribution. That is, if you can get away with it in this life, you can get away with it forever. But he said the bad news is that when you dispense of God, you lose all logical basis upon which to declare anything right or wrong, good or bad. See, in order for something to be good or bad, right or wrong, there has to be a standard to compare it to. Therefore, if the universe is just a random collision of matter blowing up and forming something, then there is no design, no purpose, no good, no bad, no right, no wrong. It just is. And that's it. I mean, certainly... 
even within that view, behaving in a certain way can be more useful for survival and getting along with others well. But that's not the same as saying it's right and wrong. So the result is you might feel like the genocide going on in parts of Africa or the Middle East is wrong, but without God, it just is. It's not right or wrong, it just is. See, God, the Creator, the one who made all things purposely to work in good, orderly manner is the only solid basis to define right and wrong. Everything else is just people's opinions, and people's opinions change. There's no enduring foundation. Christians believe good is found in God, and God created all things good. That's what Genesis 1 says over and over and over again. Everything he creates, God says, it's very good. Christians believe injustice because God created things good and orderly. Now, now think about that. Most of our definitions of justice or sexuality or morality or right and wrong in America today and in our world today are just the collective opinions of some, usually the media who puts out whatever the most predominant view is. Even if intelligent people put those views forward, it doesn't make them right unless they are also in line with the Creator's vision. Still, at first glance, Genesis 1 might seem like it's just making that grand point that God is the creator and the definition of good, but Genesis 1 is actually culminating in something else that's even more important. And it's verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the second lesson is this, that the pinnacle of God's purpose in creation was creating you and I, creating humans in his own image. Think about that. If you are ever feeling down, if you are ever feeling unloved or feeling worthless or feeling alone, and you need a boost to your self-esteem, just, just read that. What that says is your worth is un fathomable. I mean, the bird's eye view of the whole Bible of God's view of us is that even in our brokenness and sin, you are still so worthwhile that God came as Jesus to save you and restore you to the good that he originally created you to be. Now think about the most amazing scenery you have ever seen, the most amazing things you've ever seen in life. When God looks at you, he says, you are more beautiful than the best tropical beach you have ever seen. You are more majestic than that herd of elk running on the mountains of Rocky Mountain National Park. You are more powerful, you are more beautiful than that whale breaching or that eagle soaring in the sky. You are more mesmerizing than the most stunning sunset or the best starlit sky you've ever seen. Your beauty your worth as a person is far greater than all of them put together. Take a drink of that. Fill your soul 
with that. See, it's sad because for the atheist, there is no true beauty. Just things that are programmed by natural forces to happen. Richard Dawkins, our current soundbite atheist of the day, proposes that if you look at scenery like a forest or a hill or a mountain or a beautiful green field and you think it's beautiful, Dawkins says that it's just simply because your ancestors saw the same thing and believed there was food there, so they passed that neurological trait down to you as a way to help you survive. Does that really seem to make sense of our reality? That feeling you get when you see this owl silently soaring through the sky or the sunset of a mount, on a mountain? Or, 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 or Is it just because you think there's food out there? That beautiful starry sky, it just reminds you of Twinkies. Really? Do you really believe that the love attract, that attracted you to your spouse is just a conditioned response embedded in your DNA to ensure survival by making you want to hook up with them to have babies? Can you imagine a Hallmark card that says that? Hey, my DNA has determined that you're useful to me to have children, so let's make out. Something in us says that whole view of reality is absurd. And yet C.S. Lewis once said one of the greatest arguments for God is the fact that a baby feels hunger and there's food. One of the things I did for the holidays was, uh, you know, we used to have, many of you maybe have this, we all had all these DV tapes we took, you know, videos of our kids growing up, but we never had time to burn them and whatever, so I sent them off, got them all burned to stuff we could see. Some of them were over 15 years old. One of them, we came watching over the holidays with family, was Jared still when he was in a diaper. Some of you really want to see that, don't you? We were living in Oregon, and he walked up to the sliding glass door and all of a sudden gasps because... Not more than six feet away is a mama deer having a baby. And Wendy grabbed the camera, and they captured most of it on video, including how do you explain to a toddler what's happening in front of their eyes right now? (laughs) The amazing thing is that that baby deer, within just moments of being born, was hungry, and it knew where to get food. It went right to it. Such beauty and such a powerful proof of God. See, Christians believe, and the Bible teaches, that all God made is good and beautiful. That in particular, humanity is the beautiful and preeminent part of all of creation, the only part of creation made in His image, intended to reflect His image in this earth. That's the reason the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says there's, there's eternity in our hearts. That's the reason the great scientist and Christian philosopher Pascal described humans as having a God-sized hole in us that needs to be filled with God. And if not, it'll be filled by something else. It'll be filled by love of family or friends or love of affirmation and praise from others or success or money or things or alcohol or drugs. It's going to be filled by something. See, the human heart... And life is only designed to be healthy when God is at the center and we are reflecting the one in whose image we are made. 
If God is not at the center of every aspect of our life, and we will be driven to try to find happiness, but it will always feel like that happiness is around the next corner. It's going to be in that next goal. It's going to be in that next relationship or next person. We'll never really quite get there. I love the way J.D. Greer says it. He says, until you find him, referring to Jesus, life is like a tool that you just don't quite know what it's for. When you discover this, you find your true identity. We find our true identity in God. We don't find our identity in anything else other than God. And we find our identity in what God says about us and who we are, who we're created to be. So giving a a quick glimpse ahead on the Bible, that's why when Jesus saves us, the Bible, and in particular books like Ephesians in the New Testament, spend so many words on describing our identity in Christ. Using things like, you are a saint, you are blessed, you are chosen by God, you are righteous in God's eyes. You are his fully adopted kids, the same as Jesus, so that you are co-heirs with Jesus, of the inheritance God has for us. You are secure in Him, and it talks about so many other things about our identity. Because we are valuable beyond anything else in creation. All of creation is there to meet the needs of humanity. We are not like the animals. They are not created in the image of God. They are there for our enjoyment and for our needs. See, this challenges the fundamental philosophy that comes out of evolution. And it also provides a healthy balance to some of the the, the more radical save the owls and save the planet movements. See, the Bible talks about the abundant riches that God has in store for us. That doesn't mean we're all going to be Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg kind of rich. I mean, God's riches are a richness of life and a richness not just for this life but for eternity, a richness of life that surpasses anything we could ever imagine getting from money. See, the Bible talks about the authority God wants us to walk in as being created in His image, as the, as the Spirit of God does eternally significant good things through us. The question is, do you see yourself with that kind of worth and that kind of promise? Because that's how God wants you to see yourself. Not in a pump-yourself-up kind of way, but in this grateful, humble, confident, and I mean very confident recognition of who God has made you to be and who He's restoring you to be. See, when you see your identity in God being this good, this amazing, that beautiful, and when you see the lengths to which God goes to throughout history and especially in Jesus, because you are so loved and so amazing that even in your sin, God considers it worth sending Jesus to come and die for you and save you to be close to you. When you see those things, the power of hiding and the self-protectiveness that keeps us trapped in our mistakes and our sin in life, that just melts away, melts away. You become free to be open and honest, even with your sin, because you are so loved. 
See, when we get this truth, though, we also see the value of our daily work. The text says God created the world and animals, etc., and then, and then created man and woman in his image and gave them, it says, dominion. And that word dominion means we are stewards. We are ruling stewards over the earth. And we have a purpose uh, to care for and cultivate the earth. That's our motivation for environmental responsibility. That's our motivation for work. Farmers cultivate the earth as servants of God to provide abundance for humanity. Artists take materials and create beautiful works of art to inspire us to glorify God and honor His creation. Lawyers and policemen and politicians take principles, at least hopefully, take principles of justice and create safe, just, honoring culture. See, it's actually reasonable to summarize these implications in Genesis 1 and 2 this way, that God created, but there is still more creating to be done. And He has given you and I the joy of taking things from the earth and making useful things, making beautiful things, even making fun things out of them. That means that your work that provides for yourself and others is good, God-honoring work given to you by God Himself. So do it with that kind of focus and that kind of joy, whatever it is that He's given you to do. Being created in the image of God with such great worth and goodness also underpins morality and law for us. Morality is ultimately based in valuing the great worth and the good of others because they are created in the image of God. As you read the Bible, almost all of the commands about morality in the Bible center on this idea. The commands about punishments around murder, abortion, euthanasia, uh, even unfaithfulness or sex outside of marriage, all center in the fact that when we do those things, we attack the image of God and defame the image of God. The commands to let our, our speech be honoring and gracious of others rather than falling into gossip and slander is because when you speak of another, you speak of someone created in the image of God. So when you gossip or slander someone, you are actually defaming not just them, but you're defaming God in whose image they are created. Any sin we do against others or ourselves is also against God because we are created in His image. How we care for the needy and the weak, how we care for those that we call having disabilities, it is all motivated and grounded in this reality that God created all with a very good purpose and that all of humanity is created as the pinnacle of His creation, created in God's image. Now let's take this passage to another deeper level and practical level still. Did you catch the odd part in the last scripture we read? In verse 26 it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So here we've got one true creator God talking about himself with terms like us and our. As mind-blowing as it is, and it is, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity shows up in the very first chapter of the Bible. God, one being, and three persons. It's a mystery that we can only try to feebly 
even understand and explain, but, but there's a really important practical lesson that comes out of this for us. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches us about reality that God is love and God is relational. See, most origin stories of other faiths, faiths have a God creating to meet an unmet need in themselves, that, that, that God is lonely, they need people to feel powerful, whatever the motivation is. But the Bible and Christianity teach God has forever been in perfect relationship within the Trinity. He didn't create because he was lonely. He wasn't. He creates purely out of the overflow of love that is within himself and the relationship within the Trinity. This is actually the primary basis upon which we came up with the little thing on the wall in the lobby. This is relationships are the mission. Humans are created in the image of God. They are inherently relational people. We are inherently relational. We need each other. We need deep friendships. We need vital family relationships. We cannot live as islands unto ourselves. Men, we can't be these fierce, independent, stoic, self-sustaining people. That's not who God made us to be at all. We were designed for relationship. We need deep friendships. We were designed to have a purpose as well that spreads that love and friendship of God to others in a way that we connect deeply with the people we're trying to spread that love to. See, the most frequently powerful used metaphor in the Bible to illustrate our need for relationship is actually the imagery of marriage and sexuality comes up all the time in this, in the Bible. We were designed male and female and Together, we best represent the image of God. See, there's something about the differences in the sexes that together forms a more complete experience and picture of who God is. So let's return to the text and set up our fourth and final point. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Another way to say without form and void would be to translate that chaos. There was no order. It was just chaos. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Our fourth lesson is this. God's Word brings order out of darkness and chaos. God's Word and ways bring order to our lives. Our sin, on the other hand, causes our lives to fall back into chaos, to disorder and darkness. Many of you have been doing the reading program, so you already see, you've already read through the parts where you see in the succeeding chapters to what we, uh, to this, uh, you see people moving further away from God and His ways, and as they do, there's more chaos, there's more disorder, there's more darkness, and frankly, there's more blindness that you see, not even be able to understand what is truly good and right. And we see blindness in our culture today, too. The further away our culture goes from God, the more that we're calling black-white and white-black and good-bad and, 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 and bad-good in our culture, the more blind we are as people. Later on, when you get to read about Moses and the, and the ten plagues of Egypt, one is going to be tempted to read those plagues as though they are ten random punishments from God to get Pharaoh to let his people go. But, but, but honestly, if that's what's going on there, then why didn't God just give Moses the Darth Vader chokehold? And that would be the end of the story. You don't need all that other stuff. 
So you know to read that as God being petty and punitive, trying to make a point by punishing people is a wrong way of reading it. What you see is that the more sin comes in, the more God's word is rejected, the more chaos of natural things like gnats and frogs and all that stuff ensues. Pharaoh's sin leads to more chaos, and you see that chaos in the plagues. Now, maybe this is just me, but I think anyone who reads the story of the ten plagues in Pharaoh can't help but think, what a foolish, stupid man Pharaoh must have been. I mean, why did it take ten? Seriously? Who could be that blind and stupid to reality? But again, aren't, aren't we all too often blind? I mean, how many relationships have been ruined and families blown apart because we didn't live by God's commands when it came to faithfulness or sex or money or love or gossip or forgiveness or any other number of things? We kept choosing sin rather than choosing God and His ways, thinking we could control things, thinking we could make it all work, and things just got darker and darker and eventually blew up. And so many people who I've talked to who have lost their marriages, one and even sometimes both of them have have said, "I, I didn't see it coming. I was blind to what was really going on. Sin and rebellion unravels creation, and it leaves us in darkness and blindness. See, I wonder often, how many things am I still blind to? Where do I not really see reality as it really is? God's Word brings order out of chaos and darkness. And we even see it in John 1 where it starts the story of Jesus. And it says, in the beginning was the Word. Now that Word is actually referring to Jesus. Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Where this story is heading is that Jesus, the Word, God Himself, enters physically into the world that has fallen into darkness and chaos because of sin, and He brings light and life. Throughout Jesus' ministry here on earth, we see him bringing order out of chaos. We get glimpses of him setting things right when, he, when he's healing diseases, when he's opening blind eyes, when he's making the lame walk, when he walks in the water and calms a storm and overcoming the chaos of creation. When, where sin has left darkness, he opens the spiritual and moral eyes of people to see and respond and find freedom. And every time he's, he, he forgives someone, an adulterer, a thief, a liar, or, or someone who's oppressing another, he, he brings light. He says, let there be light. And he opens the eyes in those situ- situations. We see a prostitute becoming a great woman of faith and character, a thief becoming a generous giver, and we see an abusive, self-righteous, religious person becoming a humble, kind, passionate follower of Jesus. And at the end of Jesus' life, we see Jesus put himself right in the middle of the darkness and the chaos on the cross. When he died, it says the earth shook and the sky turned black as night during daytime. And, and God turned his face away from Jesus in that moment. And the greatest act of love, the greatest wonder ever is Jesus, the word who spoke creation into being, putting himself in the darkness 
and the void caused by our sins so that we who had rejected him and his word and his ways and plunged everything into darkness and chaos could have light and life and hope and restoration. See, it's fascinating. John, in his eyewitness account of Jesus, actually notes that Jesus died on the sixth day, the very same day that the creation account says humanity was created. God's word creates order out of chaos and darkness. Sin attacks that order and plunges creation back into darkness. And Jesus came to restore order and freedom from sin and to one day set everything right and bring it back to perfection. Let's wrap it up this way today. Our calling as followers of Jesus is to bring order where there's chaos, to bring gospel light and life and peace where there is pain and brokenness and injustice. So, wherever you see brokenness, whether it's in your business, in your relationships, in your family, in the way the poor or the weak are treated around you, God is calling you to be an agent of redemption in your work to bring flourishing and peaceful and affirming and empowering and joyful relationships and purpose in your community to bring people together and where you see racial tension and poverty to be an agent of healing and prosperity. Whatever God has made you to do, Whatever you are doing right now, do it well and bring glory to God while you do it. Work not for your boss's pleasure, but work for God's pleasure. So a couple questions. Where does God want to bring freedom from sin and chaos in your life and bring order and restore beauty in and through your life? Another question. What step can you take this week to engage in being relational in Christian community as God has designed you and your needs and desires to be? And most importantly, do you know the love God has for you? Do you know it? Do you know that you're more beautiful, that you're more awesome than than any sunset beach or mountain or tropical rainforest scene or that you could ever imagine? Do you know his forgiveness and love coming to you to redeem you and lead you in his good ways? If you don't know that, then I want to invite you as we close after this song in a moment to come down and talk to one of our prayer team and let them just encourage you on a path to discovering that kind of love so you can see it, you can know it, you can live in that and know how beautiful God has made you and how good God is has plans for you, for your future. Let's stand with me as we pray. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd come right now as I know you're already here. But Lord, I know even in my own life there are areas where where I know this, but I don't really know it. So I pray wherever that area is for any one of us here that your spirit now, even as we... Turn our, turn our attention to sing worship to you would come to us and, and even as we go through this week that you would come to each one of us and that you would affirm how awesome you made us, how beautiful you made us, how worthwhile you made us, how much you love us and that even where we've messed up, 
you still love us that much and you want to restore beauty and perfection to our lives. So Lord, just help us receive you in that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.